We come to chapter 7, to one of the most misunderstood passages of prophecy. And so I'm going to spend a, I'm going to spend a while on this chapter 7, because I want to explain how prophecy works to the best that we can figure it out. Prophecy is way more complicated than what we realize. And this is, a, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is chapter 7, verse 14, when it says, and the sign will be to you a woman will give birth to Emmanuel, so to speak. And we read this every Christmas. What I want you to do is completely erase everything you know about what has been read at Christmas time and pay attention to context. Context is everything. As I had a professor say all the time, context, context, I'm going to beat you with the bat of context. Okay? Because that's the one thing that as American Christians, we have not really gotten down very well. So my... The one that bothers me most is every time it happens, there's always like certain people, like if I'm at school, there's certain teachers like Joel Walton or whatever, he'll text me. If I'm at church, there's other people who'll text me. But whenever somebody's like, Jesus, we know where two or more are gathered together, there you are as well, and we pray together. And like, if you read the context, it's you're rebuking your brother, and they're not listening. So you go and get somebody else, and they're not listening. And so Jesus is basically saying, were there two witnesses or more gathered together to rebuke this witness? There I will be as judge to condemn him. And we're like, oh, Jesus is with us. Because when I was growing up, I always thought, so if I'm by myself, God is not with me? Because he's only there if there's two or more. So, so context is important. Context is important. During the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, king Rezin of Syria, and king Pekah, son of Ramalia of Israel, marched up to Jerusalem to do battle, but they were unable to prevent, prevail against it. So Syria is another word for Aram. Syria is another word for Aram. So let's put this in context. The year is 735 B.C. exactly. This passage is extremely rooted in a very specific specific historical context. And it's important to understand this. Basically, you have Aram that's above Israel, and the king of Aram is Rezin. And then you have Pekah, who's the king of Israel. So we've talked about this. The first several chapters, Assyria is already taken Israel into exile. Now it's 735. Before 722, Israel has not been taken to exile yet. And so you have Aram, and you have Pekah of Israel, and they both wanted Ahaz of Judah to join them in an anti-Assyrian alliance. So Syria is the empire in the north. They're coming down to sack everybody. Aram has been beating up on Israel for years, but all of a sudden there's a bigger, badder bully above them. They're like, hey, let's be friends and join together now. Never mind the fact that I beat the crap out of you all the time. We need each other. So Assyria's coming, and they wanted Ahaz to join them in this treaty, and Ahaz refused to do it. And so now they've said, well, if you're not going to join us, then we're going to beat you up so that you will join us. It's like fraternity. We'll humiliate you and shame you so you'll become our friends. (laughs) They're attacking him, and that's the context, and Ahaz refused. And Isaiah's going to come into this context where Ahaz is like, I can't stop Assyria, and I can't stop Aram and Israel together against me. And so my only hope is to make an alliance with Assyria, because I don't want to make an alliance with them, because I know that they're not going to win against Assyria. So he doesn't really know what to do. 
The other thing you need to know is Ahaz was an incredibly unfaithful king. He was an, un- an ungodly, unfaithful king. His son would be Hezekiah, and he would change everything. But Ahaz, Ahaz was an ungodly king. So this is the context. These two kings in the north, Aram, also known as Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, and Israel are coming down on them. Verse 2, it was reported to the family of David, Syria has allied with Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for Israel. They and their people were emotionally shaken, just as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Yahweh told Isaiah, go out with your son, Shira, Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, which is located on the road to the field where they wash and dry cloth. No, everything is very specific. You've got, to, you've got to understand this. We're talking about a very specific time period, a very specific location, and very specific people in history. Tell him, make sure that you stay calm. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated by these two stubs of smoking logs. Now, God often referred to Israel as a stick that he was going to throw in the fire and burn it. And then it would be nothing but a smoldering stick that's completely useless to anybody. And that's what he's saying here. Don't you, They look big and bad and powerful to you now. But in my eyes, they're smoldering sticks that are worthless. Or by the raging anger of Rezin of Aram or Syria, the son of Ramalia. Syria has plotted with Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, to bring about your demise. They say, let's attack Judah, terrorize and conquer it. Then we'll set up a son of Tabeel as its king. For this reason, the sovereign master says this. So they're wanting to take over him and then set up some like mindless puppet king that will just do whatever they want them to do so they can control the army and the wealth of Judah. That's their hope. Now, God is not going to deliver and protect Ahaz because Ahaz is a godly man. He's going to protect and deliver Ahaz so Ahaz will turn to Yahweh. It's the same thing to do with Ahab. He says, Ahab, you're a scumbag. My prophets have already told you that twice. They've already prophesied against you twice. But Ben-Hadad is going to attack you. He can totally beat the crap out of you. But I'm going to deliver you so that you will know that I am God. And you'll turn to me and trust in me. So sometimes God delivers us just so that we'll turn to him, not because we deserved it or are worthy of it. And that's what he's hoping to do to Haas. So he says, don't be afraid. I am with you. For this reason, the sovereign master, Yahweh says, it will not take place. It will not happen. For Syria's leader is Damascus. That's the capital of Syria, of Syria or Aram. And the leader of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will no longer exist as a nation. Now, that's a very specific number. And it's true. Within 65 years, Israel will be sacked and taken out and will no longer exist. Ephraim's leader is Samaria. That's another word for Israel. And Samaria's leader is the son of Ramalia. If your faith does not remain firm, then you will not remain secure. So I'm promising you that within 65 years, Israel will no longer be a threat to you. And in Ramalia will never, in Rezin will not be a threat to you. If your faith remains firm, then you'll remain secure. Remember, it's always about faith. Yahweh chapter 7 verse 10 again spoke to Ahaz. Ask for a confirming sign from Yahweh your God. You can even ask for something miraculous. So God says, here's a prophecy. Now remember, every prophecy requires a sign. 65 years is a long time to potentially wait. So how do you know you can trust Isaiah's 
not full of crap. Well, he's got to produce a sign that it will immediately happen. So God literally comes to him, and unlike many, many other people, he comes to him and says, you can pick whatever sign you want, and I'll do it to prove that I will make you secure, and I won't attack you. But Ahaz responded, I don't want to ask, I don't want to put Yahweh to the test. Oh, such a godly man. First, you're not putting God to the test when he specifically tells you to ask for a sign. Two, God has made it very clear that asking for a sign is a command from God that you should always do whenever anybody says anything to you. Testing Yahweh is testing to see if it is God and that the message truly came from God is not wrong. Testing whether God is capable or loving to do what he can is wrong. What Ahaz is basically saying is, I don't really want to put my faith in you. I don't want to give up my idols and all that kind of stuff, so I'm just going to use Jewish jargon to make myself seem more godly than what I am so that nobody will realize I just don't want to repent. And that's basically what it says. So Isaiah replied, Pay attention, family of David. Do you consider it too insignificant to try the patience of men? Is it that why you are also trying to try the patience of God? Like God told you to do something. And now you're like, and he's like, you're, you're trying the patience of God. You already don't think it's a big deal to try the patience of the people in your kingdom. Now you're ready to tick God off too. Like what is wrong with you? For this reason, the sovereign master himself will give you a confirming sign. So God says, look, I will give you a sign whether you like it or not. (laughs) Because that's how prophecy works. Remember, if God prophesies something, must the sign be fulfilled before or after the prophecy? Before. Remember, if I say... In 100 years, America is going to be completely destroyed and wiped out, and there will be nothing left. And you're like, yeah, whatever. So if I'm going to prove to you that I really know what I'm talking about, I must do something immediately so that you can trust in 100 years to prepare your grandchildren for that. So I have to do something immediately to confirm. So God already told you that Israel will cease to exist and... Aram will cease to exist in how many years? So the sign has to happen before that. When is Jesus going to come? Yes, way after that. Automatically, you know, according to context, a very specific year and a very specific socio-political environment with a very specific kings and very specific location and a very specific date of 65 years the sign cannot be Jesus. It's absolutely logically impossible. So what is the sign? Look, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. A young woman will name him Emmanuel. He will eat sour milk and honey, which will help him know right from wrong and reject evil and choose what is right. Here is why this will be so. Before the child knows how to reject evil and choose what is right, the land whose two kings you fear will be desolate. Yahweh will bring on you your people and your father's family a time unlike any since Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This woman is going to conceive and give birth to a child. And you will call him Emmanuel. And before he's old enough 
to make his own decisions of right and wrong, you will see these two nations you fear come to an end. Is that Jesus? No way. No way. Not at all. There's nobody who's thinking Messiah in the original. Like when people are reading Isaiah for the first time, they're not thinking Messiah. There are passages where they're thinking Messiah when they read it. Chapter 9 is one of those. But this isn't it. Lighter translations say that virgin. But that's a back translation. Some of you are thinking, but wait a minute. Matthew 1.23 specifically quotes this. The reason we say this every Christmas is because Matthew, who's inspired by the word of God, not you, Corey, said that this is a fulfillment. Jesus' birth is a fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Yeah, but you have to remember the, pro- the gospel writers, D.A. Carson says they play fast and loose with scripture, but they're inspired by God too. But he means that in a good way. Because what he means is prophecy doesn't always operate the way we think it does. Okay, so, let's, let's, so I'm going to start unpacking this. The reason your Bible say virgin here is even though that word does not mean virgin, is because it can It means young woman of marriageable age or a young woman who is married or a young woman who's been married for a while. It can mean all different points. It can even mean a little girl. And the way that you know is by context. You know there is no word for son and grandson. It's the word descendant. And whether it's the son or the grandson, you have to figure out by context. There is no, even in Greek, there's no word for hand, finger, or arm. It's all the same word. You have to figure out which one it is by context. That's why the Catholics got wrong when they thought he was crucified in his hand. Because it's the very same word. So it's context, like the trunk of a tree, the trunk of a car, the trunk of a car, the trunk of an elephant, the trunk at the end of your bed. It's context. So the word here is a young woman. It can very rarely refer to a virgin, but most of the time it means a young married woman. So when Matthew quotes it, he changes the word from young woman to virgin, which is legitimate to specifically refer to Mary. Then translators seeing that back translate the word virgin into the Hebrew here, but not all translations, because they assume that Matthew is correct in what he's doing. So they're like, well, that's what they originally meant, right? Of course, we didn't know what they meant. But now that Matthew's come along, we now know what they meant, so we'll pick virgin. No, 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 no. Matthew hasn't come yet. He's not even born. Let's stick with the context. So what he's saying is this young woman. Most scholars believe that the young woman might actually be Isaiah's wife. So the point is what he's saying here is, none of you know this yet, but that woman is pregnant. And the fact that I know she's pregnant and nobody knows it, is the sign. And when she starts having baby bump in a few months, and then she gives birth to a child, you're going to name that child Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then when that child, you'll watch him grow up, and before he even hits hits the age where he can make right and wrong decisions, when he's still eating honey and curd, which is a baby food that they had in the ancient world. So when he's still on baby food, and he can't really rebel against you yet, that prophecy will be fulfilled. He's pointing to a very specific woman, a very specific pregnancy, 
and a very specific child that they will actually be able to watch with their own eyes grow up in their lifetime because they have to in order for God to be right. If this isn't that child in that time period and it's really about Jesus, then God is wrong and he failed because he didn't give them a sign to prove that Assyria or Israel and Syria would be destroyed and they, they didn't see it ever happen. You can either say this is about Jesus, but then you have to say God messed up here. Or you can say it's not about Jesus and God didn't mess up. I prefer the latter. That's the immediate context. Now, what God is saying here is, you'll call him Emmanuel because that child being born that nobody knew about and watching that child grow up will prove that God is with you. God is with you. But if you keep reading in the immediate context, Ahaz kind of rejects this all and it goes into judgment. So it could also potentially mean God is with you even when he judges you. Either way, God is with you. And so it's like, as a father, I am with you when I'm blessing my kids and giving them ice cream. I'm also with them when I'm spanking them and punishing them and putting them in time out. Either way, I'm with you. <laughs> so this is what he's saying. But specifically what he's saying is, I will prove to you that I am with you. I will prove to you that you can be secure if you place your faith in me. That woman is going to give birth to a child, and you'll be able to see him grow up. And before he hits that age of moving from baby food to making right and wrong decisions... Israel and Syria will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. That's the immediate context. Why in the world does Matthew think that he can apply that to Jesus? Because prophecy works in two different ways. The first way that prophecy often works is what's called prediction fulfillment. This is what we're mostly used to. This is how most people use prophecy. The Greeks use prophecy like this all the time. We're used to this in movies and Hollywood stuff, that kind of stuff. And this is where I say, like, from that city, Bethlehem, a child will be born and he will restore the Davidic line of rule. That's prediction fulfillment. Now, it's really far off, but it's prediction fulfillment. It's, it's when God comes to Hezekiah in chapter 20, in chapter 19 of 2 Kings, and says, I will drive Sinanacherub away by morning, and he will never, ever come back again. And the next morning, 185,000 soldiers die. He packs up, and he moves on. That's prediction fulfillment. Or it's like, well, the world's going to end in 2012, okay? It's prediction non-fulfillment. So prediction fulfillment is a very literal, I'm going to give you a very specific event and a very specific date, maybe, or a name, and it's going to literally happen the way that I said it does. Ahab, you're going to die, and the dogs of Shechem are going to lick your blood off the chariot. Say, so this isn't foreign to the Jews. They've seen this a lot over and over and over again. But there's another kind of prophecy that's more what's called typology. And typology is where a picture is painted, and it's mostly a picture of what God is doing. And then God repeats that in a bigger way. Now, the picture he's painting is not specifically pointing towards anything. It's not predicting anything. It's basically an imagery of who God is. So, for example, the imagery of Moses. Moses is a typology. He was an, an incredible prophet, he was closer to God than anybody ever, ever has been. And he did miracles and that kind of stuff. 
and he went down to Egypt, and he fled, and he brought the plagues, and that kind of stuff, da 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 Then you realize, when you get to that, that Moses became a typology of Jesus, because Jesus also was the greatest prophet that has ever lived. He had a face-to-face conversation with God in a way that nobody else had. Moses was both prophet and military leader. So was Jesus. Jesus also went to Egypt and then fled and had his own exodus. And Matthew builds all these Moses themes around Jesus, just like the writer of Kings built all these Moses themes around Elijah. And so you realize that this is a typology. And so then you realize that Moses and then Joshua become a typology for the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. So then you see the tabernacle. The tabernacle, you have the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is lost. So God builds this tabernacle. The tabernacle is not predicting Jesus. The tabernacle is not predicting the second coming of Christ. But then when you realize that Christ comes along and says, I am the tabernacle, I am the temple. The the word tabernacled among us. I am the light of the world, referring to the light in it. I am the gate, referring to the gate of the tabernacle. I am the, no one comes through. And you realize that he's intentionally saying, I'm fulfilling all that. Now, the tabernacle will never said, I am the Messiah that will come one day in the year, da 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 And nobody would ever have seen the tabernacle as being anything future or pointing to anything. But what you realize is like, wow, Jesus seems to really match up to the type or the model of the tabernacle a lot. And he paints that. And so the, the God paints a picture. So it's kind of like if I'm drafting something, I draft something and I draw all these pictures, and then one day I want to build it in real life. Think of a Van Gogh painting or a Monet painting. Did they paint those paintings with the intention that that should be recreated in a 3D real life kind of a way? No. And nobody will look at that and say, that starry night is going to literally happen one day and look exactly like that one day. They're not thinking that. They're just thinking Van Gogh is inspired. This is a beautiful art. This is a beautiful model, a picture. But then let's say one day somebody actually comes along and they have the ability, the technology, the power, whatever you want to call it, and they literally recreate a real-life version of Monet's pond or the Starry Night or something like that. And it becomes a fulfillment of the painting, yet the painting wasn't predicting that to come. Does that make sense? And sometimes God builds typology. So typology, he'll paint a picture, and then he'll decide to unpack that a little bit more again, and then he'll unpack that a little bit more again, and then he'll unpack that a little bit more again, and it gets bigger and better each time. So I'll give you an example. And and now, I don't think this is the greatest example. I had a really good example one time, and then I forgot, and so I had to come up with something else. So let's say that I go to my daughters, and I say, we're going to go to the park. I promise you, we're going to go to the park, okay? We go to the park. I'm like, I'm going to make this park a really great experience. So we go to High Banks, okay? It's a beautiful day. The sun is going through the trees. Everything is just vibrant green. And we go hiking. It's a perfect day. And we, and we go to the park. And so I have painted a picture of what going to the park means to them. And they're mine. That is not a prediction of anything we're going to do in the future, It's not a promise that it's going to happen again and again and again. It's just, I said, we'll go to the park. We go to the park for the first time. It's my girl's first experience ever. They're wowed and amazed by everything they're seeing because they've never seen a park like this and that kind of stuff. 
And then next year, I just say, hey, we're going to go to a park again. The first thing that's going to pop in their head is High Banks Park. But this time, I decided to take them to like Dolls Arboretum which is like way bigger and way more manicured and way more all that kind of stuff out towards Newark, okay? And, and it's, they're like wowed even more by this, but it's still a park. And even then, they're not thinking, oh, this is pointing to something future that is going to happen. They're just thinking, this is an even better park. And then one day, I decide we're going to go to a park again, and this time we go to like Cedar Point, which is drastically different than what they've ever experienced but still like amping it up. And then they, they have this bigger, fuller, and a completely different understanding and a different view and a different perspective of what a park could be. And they're wowed and they're amazed even more. But they're still not thinking this is predicting some future event that's going to come along. And then one day, I say, we're going to a park. And they're like, yay. And I take them to Dubai. The most ultimate like thing that you could possibly imagine as far as what man has built and technology and wow and wonder and all this kind of stuff, the buildings, the lights, the fireworks, all this kind of stuff. And their mind is just absolutely blown because we're going way beyond any idea of a park that they could ever possibly ever imagine. That's how typology works. Okay, so what's the context? The context is a serious coming. And they're going to cut you down. And they're going to destroy you. And in, in Syria and Israel threaten to cut you down and destroy you. But I will give you a child. And this child will be Emmanuel. And as you watch this child grow, he will prove to you that I am with you. That God with us. That I will keep you from the judgment. I'll take you through the judgment. If you Repent. So why is Matthew, how does Matthew use that? Matthew says, you Jews, Isaiah 7 is not predicting Jesus. But our time period is like that time period. The Romans are here. And John the baptizer comes along the scene and he says, the axe is at the tree. And what he means is the Romans. And Isaiah, later in the Bible, is going to use the imagery of the axe being Assyria and Babylon, cutting down the tree of Israel. And the difference is a new shoot will rise up eventually. That's, yes, that exists in the Bible, but that's not here in chapter 6. John the baptizer picks up on that theme. And he says the axe is at the tree. Now, every Israelite immediately is taken back to the Assyrians of Babylon's. Because the only time they've ever heard about an axe cutting down the tree ever before is when God used the Assyrians to cut down Israel. He used the Babylonians to cut down Judah. He used the Persians to cut down Babylon. That imagery is going to be in Daniel as well. And so they know axe at the tree means a foreign nation is going to come in and just destroy you. And who would that be? It's the Romans. So John the Baptist is saying, repent, repent. Just like he said to Haas, your faith remains firm in me and you will be secure. John the baptizer says, repent and you will live. He's using all the same language. He's saying the axe is at the tree. The Romans are coming. They're coming to destroy you. But they haven't seen or heard a prophet in hundreds of years. It's been 400 years and they have not heard prophets. And they have been asking the question, where are you, God? Where are you? 
Where are you? And all of a sudden, John the baptizer shows up. And he says, I'm the new prophet. And they're like, yeah, right. God hasn't sent prophets in a long time. And God hasn't answered our prayers in a long time. And you're some crazy man out of the wilderness. How can we believe you? Because one is coming who is greater than me. And I am not worthy to untie his sandals. And I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with fire. That's the sign of what's coming. So Matthew looks at all this and says, this is just like Isaiah's time period. This is just like Ahaz. Ahaz is like Herod. And John the baptizer is like Isaiah. And Rome is like Israel and like Syria coming to attack them, eventually Assyria. And Herod is not trusting in God. And the people are questioning everything. And they're about ready to be destroyed in judgment, just like we are about ready to be destroyed in judgment by the Romans. And we know this is all coming, because this is the way that God's been operating for a long time. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of that, God gives us a child, a child that's going to change everything, a child that shows that God is with us. And oh my goodness, welcome to Dubai, because he's not just a proof that the child is with us, he literally is God with us. He is literally Emmanuel. And so Matthew sees all these connections. And so he says, remember, we've been growing up and hearing the prophets our entire life. We practically have the prophets memorized. This is like me coming to you and saying, it's kind of like football. And I say, Jesus is the coach, and da-da-da-da-da, right? And everybody's like, I can totally connect with you and relate to you because football is such a big part of our culture. And we do that all the time. But I'm not saying that football predicted Jesus. I'm just saying that football is an analogy of Jesus. But football wasn't created to be an analogy of Jesus. I'm just hijacking it to connect you into a world that you understand to help present a new concept that you might not understand. So Matthew is not saying that Isaiah was predicting Jesus. He's saying we all know this world. We're still living in this world. The exile is not over for us. We're still wondering when God's going to do all these things. And now I'm going to present a new world to you that you can't even imagine, where God literally became human. And God is literally going to deliver us, not in just an army or protecting us, but through the cross. And so I'm going to take this analogy of Isaiah, and I'm going to root you deep into it, and I'm going to say, to us, a child is born. And he is literally God with us. And he And his life will prove that God can save us from the judgment if we remain firm in our faith. And that's where Matthew is not playing fast and loose because he's not saying that Christ, that he's not saying that Isaiah predicted Jesus. He's saying that Jesus fulfills this and that he is like that, but he's way bigger and more out of the box than you could ever possibly imagine. It's the same way. It's like you have a tabernacle. Who would have ever thought that the tabernacle would literally become a God living in a human body and walking around with us? You have this big pillar of fire. Who would have ever imagined that pillar of fire was going to point towards a being on a mountain who would literally just transform into a ball of light and coming out of him 
unto people. This is what the prophets are saying. Most prophecy that we're seeing in the Gospels, that the writers are alluding to, is not exactly a predicting fulfillment. It's a, we are like what happened back then. And just like God did something back then, he's doing something now. But what he's doing now is being done through Jesus. And Jesus is going to just explode the box of how you've ever thought about how God does something, that till we get to the point then, when we now look at Jesus, we no longer even think about the typology anymore because Jesus is so beyond it that how could I ever call Dubai a park like that first experience? I will never, ever, ever think of a park like High Banks again, not after my dad just gave me Dubai. And that's what the writers are doing is he uses that. And then he says, Jesus is like that. But then Jesus goes and blows everything up way bigger than you could ever imagine. And then you no longer think about anything that was in the Old Testament because Jesus is way bigger and beyond that all. Does that kind of make sense? And that's how the gospel writers often use these prophecies and how they often use these things. And you also have to remember there were no chapters and verses back then. So when Isaiah is quoting, he's not quoting a verse. And this is if you were with me in the Hebrew study, because Hebrews, it really feels like he's taking a lot of things out of context whenever he's like, and this is the fulfilled da-da-da-da. And you go back and read the context, and you're like, what? Well, are we reading the same Bible? Because you have to remember, they're not quoting verses. They're referring to statements to trigger passages. So and I think I used this example back in Hebrews, but there's this joke where like all these people are in prison. And so they are like, they've told these jokes so many times that they, they just have them all memorized. And so they numbered all the jokes. So every once in a while, be, some of you are like, number five. And everybody's like, ha, 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 ha. And they're like, 26. And they're like, ha, 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 ha. And this guy comes in prison, he's like, what the heck is going on? Why are you all memorizing it? Or why are you all laughing at this stuff? It's like, well, we have all these jokes and that kind of stuff. That's the idea, that when they're quoting a verse, they're not quoting a chapter in the verse the way we think of it. They're quoting a sentence that triggers a whole passage and a whole context. And so he's not saying, this Jesus fulfills Emmanuel. He's saying that Jesus liked the entire context of chapter 7, 8, and 9 of Isaiah. But he's going to be even more God with us than we could have ever imagined that little boy being. That boy just, Isaiah knew things about him that nobody knew. And watching him prove that God was with us. But Jesus is literally God who knows everything about everybody and can do way more than just discern right and wrong at a certain age. Does that make sense? And that's how Matthew is using it. That's how Matthew is using it. So, I would encourage you that when you're going through the Gospels, look at these verses in their context. And if you look it up and you're like, this doesn't feel like it's a literal one-to-one ratio, a prediction fulfillment, then probably what's happening is there's a typology. And then you would need to build, read the entire context and ask yourself, how is this scenario like this scenario and what intentional connection is the author trying to say to me because then you realize it's not just 
God with us warm the cockles of your heart. You realize it's a child that's going to prove to you that God can get you through the most oppressive judgments and pagan nations that rule over you and be with you. If you remain firm in your faith. If you remain firm in your faith. And that is a way cooler understanding of Emmanuel than just, oh, God with us. Okay? Because that's usually what we're struggling with more than anything is oppression, judgment, corrupt governments, the end of a nation, possibly. Where is God in all of this? And God is saying, I'm with you. Literally. Now I'm in you. At chapter verse, verse 18, it says, At that time, Yahweh will whistle for the flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for the bees and for the land of Assyria. And all of them will come and make their home in the ravines between the cliffs and the crevices of the cliffs and all the thorn bushes and all the watering holes. And at that time, the sovereign master will use a razor hired from the banks of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the head and the pubic hair. It will all shave off the beard. At that time, a man will keep alive a young cow from the herd and a couple of goats, and from the abundance of milk they produce. He will have sour milk for his meals. Indeed, everyone left in the heart of the land will eat sour milk and honey, meaning their food will be so rare they'll have to just revert to just sour milk. At that time, every place where there had been a thousand vines with a thousand shekels will be overrun with thorns and briars, with a bow and arrow. Men will hunt, and there the whole land will be covered with thorns and briars. And they will stay away from all the hills that were cultivated for the fear of the thorns and the briars. And cattle graze there, and the sheep will trample on them. Yahweh is showing you that this child is proving that God is with you, Ahaz, and being delivered if you remain firm. But this child is also proving that God is with Israel when they get destroyed by Assyria. For Israel, God with us is their destruction. He is bringing up the flies from Egypt. That's referring back to Deuteronomy when God says, if you disobey me like they did in Egypt, I will bring the same plagues on you as I did in Egypt. And he's saying, I'm fulfilling Deuteronomy for Israel. And then he says, I will bring the razor from the Euphrates. That is Assyria. And they will mow Israel down. And so it depends on what side you want to be on. And so for them, they're saying, Jesus is saying, God is with you, Israel. Jesus is with you. And if you put your faith in him, you will be delivered through the cross. And the Roman governments of the world will be destroyed. And they will not have power over you. But Israel doesn't put their faith in God. And Jesus curses the fig tree. And it dies. And then in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. In 135 AD, they're gone. And God was with them in that too. He's with them in judgment. And so the question is, what side of the blade do you want to be on? Either way, God is here. And he's going to do something that you've never imagined him doing before. And if you think the Assyrian army was impressive and its judgment and destruction of the world, that is nothing compared when the literal God with us comes in his judgment in the book of Revelation. And in the same way, you thought Assyria was way bigger and fantastical than any judge, any other nation you've ever seen before. But it is nothing compared to what Yahweh's judgment is going to be through his son, Jesus Christ, in Revelation. 
God is with you. God is with you. What side of him do you want to be on? You can remain firm in your faith and repent, and the land will produce abundantly. Or you can rebel, and the sword will devour you. And that's the context that Matthew's pointing to. And what happened nationally will happen globally with Jesus. To prove this point further, in chapter 8, that child is literally born. And then Isaiah begins to raise it. And all the context there really seems to point to the fact that that's the child he was talking about. That was the child he was talking about. Because he's told to bring that child to the priest and for the king to see it. 